Hello and welcome to Stumbling Through Scripture. Here with me this week is myself again. If you thought I had a guest, then uh, unlucky. It's just me, Archie Catchpole, a Bible nerd living in London. And I'm so excited this week on today's episode to be looking at the parable of the wicked tenants. Mark chapter 12 verses 1 to 12. And how this episode is going to look, the shape of this episode is we're going to have a look at the context of the passage and where it kind of fits into the whole biblical story. We're going to have a look at what it meant, what did Jesus mean by telling this parable. And then finally we're going to have a look at, well, what can we glean from this passage today? What can we learn from this ourselves? And we're going to do that by focusing especially on uh, the mention of the cornerstone and that piece there in verse 10. So... I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Let's get started. One of the key things to understanding this passage is not to be confused by the chapter divisions. I mean, sure, this parable, it starts off Mark chapter 12. And because of that, we can potentially think, oh, well, if it's a new chapter, then obviously it can't be that connected to what's gone before because if it was connected to what's gone before then they wouldn't be starting a new chapter with it but that is completely aside Mark didn't put these chapter divisions in it was some other guy later I can't remember his name anyway Mark didn't do it the fact that there's a chapter division here shouldn't fool us into thinking that this parable of the wicked tenants is separated from any of what's gone before it and if you're interested in what's gone before it then whip out a Bible, flip to Mark chapter 11 and have a read through. If you don't understand what you read, then feel free to obviously check out any commentaries, but also on Stumbling Through Scripture, the whole blog post, the podcast have been going through Mark chapter 11. So maybe don't do it now, but if you did want to, then feel free to check out some of the previous episodes. But what's important is to remember that Jesus is still in the white hot heat of his confrontation with the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. He's ruffled a whole load of feathers by coming into Jerusalem and declaring himself king, by proclaiming that the temple is closed and for stopping worship in there for even a little bit, and he's cursed the fig tree. I mean, that's a private event, so not many people would necessarily know about that. But now the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they've they've had it up to here with Jesus and if you obviously can't see how high my hand is but they've had up to a very high level with Jesus so they come up and they're like who the heck do you think you are Jesus who gave you the authority to do the things that you do Jesus responds to them I'm not going to talk to you about their response because you can just read it for yourself or have a listen to some of the previous podcasts Jesus is like I'm not going to tell you what authority I'm doing these things if the chief priest scribes and elders aren't going to answer this question and then immediately then immediately afterwards Jesus begins to speak to them in parables so he doesn't tell them by what authority he's doing the things but he will continue to tell them some things and what are those things except a fantastic parable about wicked tenants so that's where this passage sits in terms of the immediate context of the biblical story and the biblical narrative and of course Jesus tells this parable and it's just one step of many along his way to infuriating the chief priests, scribes and elders so much that they decide to arrest him and have him killed. But does this passage, does it have any links to the rest of the biblical story? And the answer to that, I mean, if you've read the blog post, then congratulations to you. I mean, I'd always say, read the blog post, 
before you do anything, before you listen to the podcast, because to be honest, I put most of my effort into the blog posts. The blog posts are so much better than the podcast. So if you have email, who doesn't have email these days? Losers. If you've got an email, sign up for weekly updates from Stumbling Through Scripture. You'll get the blog post straight into your email inbox. So if you've read the blog post, then you will know what I'm about to say to you. But listen on anyway. Um, this passage, this parable, it's Jesus tells it, and it's like a remix of something else that has come before in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. If you know what Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7 are without having to flip to them to check, then congratulations to you, you're a bigger Bible nerd than I am. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7 is a love song for a vineyard. And the start of Isaiah chapter 5 and the beginning of the parable that Jesus tells, they're almost exactly the same. So there's a man who digs a vineyard, he clears it of stones, he plants choice vines in it, then he builds a watchtower and he like builds the wine vats and stuff like that. And in Isaiah chapter 5, and the same as in the parable in Mark 12, the man who builds the vineyard is supposed to be God, the vineyard is supposed, is supposed to be Israel, and the twist, the kind of slight change that Jesus adds in is that in his parable, the vineyard is leased out to tenants, whereas in Isaiah 5, there aren't any tenants. But in Isaiah chapter 5, basically, God, he plants this vineyard and he plants Israel and he expects it to give him grapes. That's fantastic. Everyone loves grapes. They're one of the best fruits ever. However, the vineyard only yields wild grapes. I didn't know that there's a difference between grapes and wild grapes. I guess obviously there is, and it's quite a big difference because God's disappointed. He didn't want these wild grapes. And so then he says in the rest of Isaiah 5 what he's going to do to the vineyard because it hasn't produced the grapes that he was expecting. He says that he's going to remove the vineyard's hedge, basically like its wall, and it's going to be devoured. It will be trampled down and it will become a waste. And all of these wild animals and birds and stuff are basically going to come and ruin it and destroy it. And so the result for Israel, because it hasn't obeyed God, because it's not produced the fruit that God expected, is that it's going to be destroyed. And so that is, that's the love song that Jesus bases his parable on. A love song where God plants a vineyard, Israel, and it doesn't produce the fruits that he expects it to, and so he'll destroy it in judgment. And as we read the parable of the wicked tenants, I mean, sure, there are some differences between the parable and Isaiah 5, but we see that the main point is the same. Like, Jesus doesn't just quote this for no reason. He doesn't quote the love song for no reason, just because he likes it. But actually, the main point is that Israel and Israel's leaders are not producing the fruit that God expects them to, and they're going to be destroyed. Our next question, if I remember correctly from what I said in the introduction, is what does this passage mean? And actually, to tell you the truth, if you've been actually listening to what I've just been chatting about, if you've been paying attention to Isaiah chapter 5, then You've already got most of the answer, to be honest, because Jesus, he's in this confrontation dispute with the Jewish religious leaders, and he quotes from the love song that's actually a song of judgment and destruction, Isaiah 5. And so on, a, on that level, the meaning is basically, you guys, you Jewish religious leaders, you've rejected me. You're not bearing good fruit, and God's done with you, basically. It's the same message 
that Jesus proclaims when he closes the temple. It's the same message that Jesus is kind of parabolically acting out when he curses the fig tree. It's that Israel, your time's up. God has given you chance after 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 chance to sort your stuff out. I was going to swear then. And you haven't done it. And so now he's finally had enough. He sent his slave one after the other to collect what you owe him, to collect the fruit that you, you've given him, that you owe him, that you haven't given him. And with all of these slaves, you've killed them, you've beaten them, you've, you've just been thuggish towards God and your time's up. And so Jesus tells this passage to the Jewish religious, leader, Jewish religious leaders to say, look, you know, God's going to destroy you. And we see that that does happen to Israel. However, one of the key differences between Jesus telling of the parable and Isaiah chapter 5 is that Jesus, when he tells the parable, he adds, so firstly, like he adds in the slaves and the messengers and the son. And obviously the son is Jesus. Like we read this like post cross and we can just see so clearly that the son, like he's beaten, he's killed. He's Jesus. Like we just put that onto him and sometimes when we like read the cross when we read the crucifixion into bible passages that take place before the crucifixion what we do is we just butcher the text and we tear them apart and we add the crucifixion where really there's no crucifixion at all however it's really interesting in this passage that i think jesus really clearly self-identifies with the son and whether it's jesus who says this himself or whether it's mark who adds it in on jesus behalf as he's retelling Jesus' recounting of the parable, is that the son is called the agapetos. And the other two times, the only other two times in Mark that agapetos is used in terms of a son is in Mark chapter 1 verse 11 at Jesus' baptism, where God says, this is my beloved son. And in Mark chapter 9 verse 7 at Jesus' transfiguration, where again, Jesus says, this is, God says to Jesus, this is my beloved son. And so the beloved son of me, like clearly, clearly he's Jesus. And Jesus at this point, Jesus has already predicted his death three times before. And so I think it's not the wildest thing in the world to imagine that Jesus is again, he's saying this with his death in mind. And I don't think anyone else who's listening to the parable will have thought, oh yeah, that beloved son, that's Jesus, that is, and he's going to die and then rise again in three days. I don't think it's like that. But I do think that Jesus identified himself as the son, as the final messenger. And the reason why Jesus would identify himself as the final messenger is because once the son is killed, that's the last straw for God. And he, he destroys the tenants and he gives the vineyard over to the other people. So one of the first differences with Jesus telling of the parable to Isaiah 5 is that he adds in the son. And one of the things with the son is that it's when the son dies, when the final messenger dies, that God takes action. And so Jesus is God's final messenger, rejected by Israel, by Israel's leaders. However, the second key difference that Jesus adds in is that in Isaiah 5, the whole vineyard is destroyed. In Mark 12, it's just the leaders, it's just the tenants of the vineyard who are destroyed. If we read from verse 9 onwards, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
And before we can catch our breath and ask, well, who are these others who are going to receive the vineyard? Jesus continues and he's like, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's amazing in our eyes. That's from Psalm 118 verses 22 to 23. And this, by the way, if he's asking, have you not read this scripture? This is clearly like a sarcastic rhetorical question. Everyone's read this scripture. Psalm 118, for, for goodness sake. Everyone has read Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is one of the most famous pilgrimage processional songs in all of Israel. And the crowd chant Psalm 118 as Jesus rides his donkey into Jerusalem. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Everyone knows this psalm. So of course they know it. Why does Jesus quote it to them? Well, I think he quotes it here because it's a clue as to who these others are who are going to receive the vineyard. We're going to chat through this whole cornerstone business after the little musical break. Uh, shout out to Will Catchpole for making the music. I'm sure you can agree. It's fantastic. So I'm not going to chat too much about the cornerstone stuff right now, but the others who are going to get the vineyard after God destroys the tenants are those people who are built around the cornerstone, i.e. they're those people who follow Jesus. Those are the people who are going to receive the vineyard. That's who God's going to give it to. So Jesus is basically saying to the Jewish religious leaders, like, look, your time's up. God's bringing in his kingdom. He's using me to do it. And the people who are going to kind of own and look after the vineyard are going to be me and my followers. That's essentially it. Jesus' followers become God's new people and they become the, the owners of the vineyard. That's, to me, it's as simple as that, I think. Like every good Christian worship set from the past couple of years, we're now coming to the cornerstone. You probably know about cornerstones from that worship song, which everyone was singing for ages on repeat, which was great, but also sometimes a little bit annoying. The cornerstone, Christ alone, the cornerstone. And that's that's it. That's what we can take away from this passage is that Jesus is the new cornerstone. Jesus is the one who God is building his new community, his new people around. Jesus. He's rejected the old Jewish religious leaders and he's building a new community around Jesus. And that's fantastic. But what actually is a cornerstone? What does it mean? Well, if you're going to get Greek about it, and I'm sure that you're all absolutely desperate that we do get Greek about it, the phrase that's used here is the kephalen gonias. And this is one of two phrases for cornerstone. The other one would be acrogonios, which is used, for instance, in Ephesians 2.20. But in this instance with Mark uh, chapter 12 verse 10 it's likely that they had the same kind of meaning but because in mark 12 10 the phrase that's used is kephalene gonias that's the one that we're kind of going to focus on in this podcast and so what that literally means is the head of the corner and because of that there are some people who have thought that well rather than translating this as cornerstone because we do have that other word for cornerstone acrogonios this isn't actually talking about a cornerstone so much as it's talking about a keystone or a capstone. And a keystone or a capstone would have been like the final stone to be laid in a building, like the highest stone or the, the one at the top, like the central 
one that people would look at and be like oh hey that's amazing that's fantastic look at that final stone it's completed the building isn't it marvelous and glorious and amazing and that is one way of looking at it and and absolutely that's true because that is jesus he's the one who completes like the building of god's work god's kingdom like he's he's fantastic and marvelous to look at however the phrase Kathleen Gonios could, you know, really literally could just mean head of the corner. So it could actually be the cornerstone. And there are just two ways of talking about the cornerstones. And so now I'm, I'm fully aware that I'm actually, I've come no closer to telling you what a cornerstone is. All we know about is some Greek and some keystones or capstones. So a cornerstone is the most basic, foundational, important of stones. It was laid at the most distant corner of a building. It would be the first stone that was laid. And it was the stone that would fix the whole orientation and the parameters of the building site, being the first stone that was laid. It was just one of the most important stones upon which the whole rest of the building would be centered around. So laying the cornerstone, having the cornerstone in place, you're saying, look, this is where it's situated, this is where the building is going to be situated, and it's upon this stone that the building is going to be oriented. It's all about this cornerstone, which is the first, most foundational, important stone that you could think of. And so what does that mean for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who is the cornerstone? Well, throughout scripture, God talks about building a temple, a living temple out of the community of Jesus followers. So we read that in, for example, like 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 to 17, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16, and in like 1 Peter 2 as well. As Christians, we are centered on Jesus. Jesus is the first and most foundational stone. All of our lives are built upon and around him, and he is the single most defining, important person, feature of our lives. That's how it should be as Christians. He's the stone that the builders rejected. The Jewish religious leaders, they cast him aside. They were like, nah, Jesus, we don't want you. You're a bit rubbish. God can't bring his kingdom through you. It's all about us. We're going to do it. But God rejects them because they reject his final messenger, his son, Jesus. They toss him away. But from that castaway stone, Jesus, God builds his new living temple and he calls us to be a part of it. And so to end this podcast, I mean, the questions are, there's so many questions, but the most important ones are, does Jesus take that most important place in your life? Do you build your life around Jesus? Are you dedicated to following him in such a way that, that everything that you do is oriented and defined by Jesus? I guess it's a fantastic time to end this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that you've learned a bit about wicked tenants, about parables and, and love songs from Isaiah. If you've got any questions, then please, like, of course, send me a message on, I guess, Instagram. Of course, you're going to have to follow me on Instagram to do that if you don't already follow me. If you're not following me on Instagram already, there's some fantastic Canva out there for you to explore. And if you follow me on Instagram, then you'll just stay updated with what's going on with Summoning Through Scripture. Of course, as I mentioned before, you can sign up for email updates of Stumbling Through Scripture blog, blog posts directly into your email inbox. The link will be in the description to this show. Next week, we were going to continue in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, the question about paying taxes. However, I'm preaching at my church. I'm preaching on Genesis chapters 1 to 3. 
and that's continuing in the church's series on remaking the world. So instead of looking at Mark chapter 12, I'm going to be just using my research from that sermon preparation to do that for some with you scripture. It's a bit of a break, a change from Mark chapter 12. So yeah, looking forward to it. Until next time, stumble with care.